Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse of Hell, a laid-back podcast discussing the scum of humanity that you love to hate. You can hear all our content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for juicy comments and gossip. Please give us a nice review. Should you not, your safety cannot be guaranteed. Hello, long time no here, and welcome back to A Glimpse of Hell, a historical true crime podcast with Rachel and Matt here in Melbourne, Australia. Matt, it's been a little while for us with uh, lots of life changes and moving and doing bits and pieces, and how are you doing? Yeah, like I can't... Uh, we have like uh, two years worth of living that's been caught up on, so there's been lots of weddings. I've moved house and everything, uh, so... Yes, unfortunately, I've uh, uh, had a uh, slight impact on the uh, regularity with which we've been able to record, so I do apologise to my co-host. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, we are recording remotely tonight, hence the old-fashioned record, you know, um, radio calling sound because my my internet connection to record off Zoom or Skype is notoriously bad. It just cuts out a lot, so we figured... This way might sound a little bit old school, but it's a lot safer for us. Just Matt lives, Matt used to live quite close to me. And uh, now that he's at his palatial residence, <laughs> he lives in another part of Melbourne, which is not that far away. But sometimes if we're coordinating things after work or this or that, it's not as easy for us to get to each other now. So we probably will have to record remotely now and then, but we are still hoping to record most of them in person. It also uh, so, doesn't help that Vladimir Putin's raised the petrol prices a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it used to be, I think Matt was used to be about a 10, 15-minute drive from me, and now it's more like, what, a 45-minute 40, drive? Yeah, like 45, so that's... 45, 50 minutes? Yeah, so that, that's a, a lot at, a, what is it, $2 a, a litre or something now? Yeah, so we're feeling it here in Australia too. Um, but we, we did want to continue on with our historical true crime because it is so interesting. It is so fascinating. We are doing this week uh, something that I've been familiar with since I was a child because I watched a miniseries about it when I was a kid with Jack Lemmon in it and I never, ever forgot it. We are doing Leo Frank and the murder of Mary Fagan. Now, this is something that happened, you know, if you want to talk about the Titanic and other things in history, this this is part of that that era of of history. It was 1913 when this took place in Georgia in the south of the USA. So just briefly, my interest in the murder of Mary Fagan, and obviously we um, we send good thoughts into the universe for the victims of, of all of these crimes, and especially to their families and their loved ones who had to carry on without them. Um, when I was... So 1988, uh, over in the US, they had a really big um, docudrama slash miniseries called The Murder of Mary Fagan, in which Jack Lemmon played sort of the pivotal role of the governor that decided to investigate and actually properly investigate the murder of Mary Fagan because Leo Frank, who'd been convicted of the murder, was seeking an appeal. And it was just fascinating. And I never, ever forgot it. It was, it was just like Peter Gallagher played Leo Frank and he looked so much like him and it just everyone in the, the miniseries, the, you know, the cinematography, the production design, the acting, 
I did watch it again about six months ago. I uh, found a copy of it on YouTube. It didn't quite, wasn't quite how I remembered it. I remembered it a bit differently, but I suppose I'm an adult now as opposed to a child, so it wouldn't be as hard-hitting for me now. But that's when my interest in Mary Fagan and her murder came from. Matt, what do you know about this? You, you sort of suggested Leo Frank, and when you said this to me, I was like, oh, yeah, Leo Frank and Mary Fagan. Yeah, I know that. Well, I'm by no means an expert, but I feel like I know probably a lot more than many in Australia. I don't think it's one of the most well-known crimes here. I came across it accidentally because, uh, well, I seem to have an ability for finding out um, the worst things that humanity can do to each other. <laughs> and yes. in a bit of cross-research, when I think I might have uh, recently watched uh, Driving Miss Daisy or a uh, film like that, and that, uh, oh no, it was actually probably a black Klansman, and that led me on to looking into some of the horrific history in America with lynching, and one of the mm -hmm. things that shocked me most was the culture of selling postcards of the, uh, that actually commemorated crimes, and that led mm -hmm. me accidentally to finding out about the Leo Frank case, because that was subjected to the, to the same media attention, where in broad daylight, it a photographer and a crowd thought nothing of um, photographing this body. Yes, um, and that those pictures of Leo Frank, who unfortunately um, lost his life as well, uh, as well as Mary, in both of them in very brutal ways, the pictures of him, I mean, his neck is just, oh, there was one particular version of the photograph or, or angle of it, and... You know, you think, oh, someone's going to get hung, whatever. You know, you don't think too much about it, obviously, unless it was happening to you. But when you see actually what the noose does to the person's neck, I was like, wow. Uh, I'd never yeah. actually seen it quite like that before. So. Well, there's one where you, like, basically can't see his head at all because it's, like, completely tilted backwards. That's right. That's sort of the front-on version. And um, so th this, this part of what Matt and I are discussing now is sort of, unfortunately, the sad end of the story. But let's... Let's talk about this crime and these two people who are involved in this crime. So Leo Frank, so this story is 1913. Leo Frank, Mary Fagan died in 1913 and Leo Frank died in 1915. So Leo Frank was actually born in Texas, uh, but he grew up in New York City. So his family were a well-to-do Jewish family. He was educated at university. And one of his family members had a share in the National Pencil Factory, I believe, which was the factory that he was the superintendent of, and that Mary Fagan, this was when child labour laws were non-existent and children, especially from poor families, would start work at like the age of 10 years old. There was a lot of controversy about it even back then. And obviously this case highlighted it even more. That Mary well, particularly Fagan, in, um, yeah. in Georgia, because like within 20 years, their industry had increased by 70%. So what had happened socially in the UK 50 years earlier, they were dealing with then. Yes, that's exactly right. So, I mean, Mary Fagan started working, I believe, when she was 10. Most children in large, lower-class families, they all lived in very close quarters together and all the children had to go out and work if they were able to. So 
Mary started working at a very young age and she was 13 and she worked at this pencil factory that Leo Frank was the superintendent of. So, um, so Leo, when he was to take over the factory, he actually went abroad to Germany and he did a, you know, Faber-Castell, the pencil company there, Eberhard Fable. He did like an apprenticeship there to learn the ins and outs of pencil making and then came back. Um, his the uncle Moses Frank was part owner of the National Pencil Factory slash company. And then, of course, Leo was hired to work there and sort of run the show down there in Atlanta. So he was married as quite a young person. He was married in 1910. Uh, he was of German ancestry, very proud German ancestry. And he was actually elected president of one of the local uh, chapters of his Jewish faith. So on April 26, 1913, Mary Fagan who was an employee of the factory, although I had read that she was actually going to be laid off because of a materials shortage. So she actually ran a machine that she would sit at all day, that the pencils would go through and the machine would put the rubber eraser on the, on the end of the pen. So I guess that was sort of technology for you back there rather than doing it hand, like each individual one hand. She went to collect her pay. There was going to be a parade on later in the day, so she got nicely dressed up with a little person and a hat and everything. And it was Allegedly, she was going to be meeting a boyfriend there. Yeah, uh, yeah, there were lots of... Just to get it afterwards. Yeah, there was... So like Matt was saying, there's lots of little twists and turns to this case. And of course, you know, yellow journalism, a.k.a. we don't actually investigate the things that we put in the paper... That was that was running rampant at the time too. But it's pretty. The basic facts of the case is, is that she went there on her own to collect her pay. I'm I'm guessing that was her either her last pay for a while or her severance pay. Um, Leo was there. He was working. He gave her the pay. He normally didn't do that on a Saturday apparently, but he gave her the pay. And then soon after, when she left speaking with him. She was sexually assaulted and brutally murdered. Now, her body wasn't found until the next morning, about 3.30 a.m., when Mootley, who was the... He was um, also black American. Um, he was the night watchman, and he went down to the basement and found her body. He immediately called the police. There was so much controversy after that. Each of the papers had their own idea what happened. So the people that they investigated, obviously, were the night watchman, Newt Lee, a guy called Connolly, who was the janitor there, and then, of course, Leo Frank. There were other people in the mix, but they were sort of pushed away. And then the main people were Frank and Connolly. Um, and basically, Connolly then came out with a story along the lines of, oh, well, Mr. Frank uh, committed the murder and I had to cover it up. There were notes found with Mary's body and they basically, when Connolly gave a sample of his handwriting, the notes were exactly the same. He said that Frank had asked him to write it and there was a lot of general racial prejudice, not only about the black um, community in Atlanta, but about the Jewish community. So everyone, you know, we have a young girl from a extremely working no one, class. No one comes out of this looking good. No, no one does. We have a, a girl from the port, wrong side of the tracks. She, she's judged. Why is she going there on a Saturday on her own? 
We've got the, you know, the Jewish, um, you know, over overseer of the factory that nobody particularly likes, who's a little bit standoffish and awkward when he's being questioned by the police. So immediately suspicion is on him. And then, of course, there's Connolly, who's the, the black janitor, um, who can kind of read and write, but is sort of illiterate as well. His spelling isn't great. Uh, his reading isn't great and his story is all over the place. He keeps changing it. Yes, he told me this. No, he told me that. So this went on. Um, basically, the police were after Frank. He was charged with the crime. Connolly was one of their star witnesses, even though the defence poked a lot of holes through his story. Um, Frank was convicted of the crime and he was sentenced to death, and Connolly was given one year in jail for assisting the crime. Uh, so for two years, so this is 1913, Leo dies in, in 1915. The developments in the case made headlines all over the US because there was an appeals process, and then ultimately the Georgia governor, who was kind of on his way out, a guy called Jack Slayton, I mean, this thing even went to the US Supreme Court with, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was one of the most famous Supreme Court justices having an involvement in it. So Frank was, Leo was often attacked in jail. Um, I think he had to spend most of his time on his own and he was nearly killed in jail. And um, so basically uh, it was the governor that reinvestigated the case and took it upon himself and he decided that it was not conclusive at all that Leo was guilty, Leo Frank was guilty. Didn't let him go, obviously, but commuted his sentence from execution to life in prison. And that wasn't good enough for the people of Georgia. So uh, basically a group of people came into the jail. I don't think the guards would have stopped not, them. Not, you know. just, not just any people, though. These were elite group of politicians and judges and law enforcement officers. Yeah, they were not they were not people from the wrong side of the tracks anyway. Maybe some of them were, but most of them, as Matt said, were very quote unquote well to do individuals. So uh I don't think and I, I think the guards looked the other way when they arrived at the jail. They drove him, they abducted him from the jail. Uh they, this was in nineteen fifteen. So he'd already been in jail for two years, drove him 150 miles to Mary Fagan's hometown of Marietta, Georgia. So Marietta is in like the north. If you're thinking of Georgia, there's Atlanta and Marietta is to the northwest going sort of up to the next group of states. It's like in the, in the corner pocket of the state. So it is a fair drive away from Atlanta. Uh, and basically they got him and lynched him and as Matt said earlier on took some what they believe to be great photographs and made them into postcards of this man being lynched so everyone was celebrating yay he's dead it's all over and done with and that was basically it there were two camps I guess a bit like the OJ Simpson case um, you know yes he did it no he didn't it was a miscarriage of justice no those men were right to do that that's just how you know it's called a necktie party and that's what we deal with down here in the south so there was you know international condemnation and as Matt said that stores openly sold postcards and artifacts from the lynching 
and the perpetrators were uh, enjoyed impunity. They were not charged, even though their faces were clearly shown. And yeah, basically I think the KKK sort of had a resurgence in that area. And I think a lot of Jewish people after that point left Georgia. And eventually Leo Frank was pardoned, Matt, because in 1982, so how many years later is that? A very elderly man by the name of Alonzo Mann, and he was Leo Frank's office boy, so he did chores around the factory. He came forward with new evidence incriminating the janitor, Conley. So remember, this was the guy who said that he had assisted after the fact and um, that Conley had said to him when he ran into him in the factory, he was carrying Mary Fagan's dead body and said, if you ever tell anybody, I will kill you. Uh, and then his mother said to him, apparently, just do not tell anybody that this ever happened. Just forget it happened. He couldn't live with it. And so near his death or on his deathbed, I did see pictures of him at her grave as this elderly man because he was a, a peer of hers. Um, he said that he was sorry and, uh, yeah, that Leo Frank was an innocent man that died. So Leo Frank was formally pardoned. Uh, so that's not the same as cancelling out the conviction, but he was pardoned. And it's just a very sad historical true crime case, Matt. Yeah. And that really didn't um, sort of revolutionise the progress of the case. It uh, more or less confirmed what was progressing uh, with the investigation that led to Leo Frank's commutation. Uh, mm -hmm. Because uh, And there is a very good... Um, a podcast uh, where is it Stephen Oney um, who's uh, wrote the article um, uh, that was discussing that uh, deathbed confession from the office boy uh, mm -hmm. so that really brought the case back into the mainstream in the 80s uh, he was uh, stating basically that all they really confirmed was uh, that from the commutation uh, evidence uh, particularly when they looked at how uh, now, spoiler alert, this is going to be gross. Mm -hmm. Oddly, the alternative suspect admitted um, offhand that he pooed in the yes. elevator shaft. So in this yes. um, ground chamber of um, uh, of the building, apparently uh, first-rate pencil-making supplies, terrible toilet facilities. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so he claimed that the elevator had been used to bring Mary's body down into the basement, but the police confirmed that based on the time that uh, he said he had gone to the bathroom, when they took the elevator themselves, uh, they unintentionally pressed that stool, which let out a huge smell. And yes. so that was kind of a literal stink bomb that threw out, um, that should have thrown out um, his uh, Conley statement. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, I was actually watching something yesterday and I wasn't aware of that. I hadn't actually read through all of the documentation that had gone into them committing the crime for Leo. So the guy was like, oh, you probably never heard this part of the story before. So actually the first, what Matt just stated was the first time I'd actually heard that yesterday. I was like, what? Because that certainly wasn't in the, the film with Jack Lemmon. But uh, yeah, so basically they would have disturbed the mess that he made and it wasn't disturbed 
when he said it should have been disturbed and all the rest of it. So he kind of put himself in the middle of it, admitting that he had actually made that mess down there. Like and Agatha the Christie, thing, only a bit more gross. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it just, you know, I mean, I'm sure Leo Frank, if he had wanted to be the perpetrator of this crime, he would have done it a lot differently by taking her away from the factory. And I just doubt it. Um, you know, a, a lot of people have made comments like Conley, you know, he was a pickpocket and all the rest of it. And, you know, probably just decided to, you know, maybe take her money or something. She fought back, it got violent and lots of different things but you know i think there was a sexual element to it as well she was a beautiful beautiful young girl she is buried in her hometown of uh, marietta georgia she is in the fagan greater family plot with um, her mother is there uh, other members of her family are there and there is like a historical plaque for her there as well. So you can go and pay your respects to her. There's always fresh flowers and an American flag there. Uh, also, Leo was taken back to New York. He was buried there. And there is also like a historical plaque in the place where he died as well. So if you were interested in the case, if you did take a trip to Georgia, you could actually see some of these true crime locations. I was just watching a video of it and this person was taking us through the graveyard and also just uh, where the lynching took place as well. Obviously has changed a lot now. But yeah, just uh, just uh, what else would you like to add to this, Matt? Well, going back to the discussion of the postcards, which is kind of what led us here, what this is perhaps the art historian me talking, but uh, what shocks me most about those images is sort of the really bright, sharp light that is often on so many of these. We're not just talking, like in movies, quite often they stereotype a lynching scene as happening in in the darkness with a bonfire mm. going around and a mob that runs runs away at the sign of authority. But although this uh, murder did happen very early, these photographs and so many others like it, because lynching was typically done more on African Americans, uh, the that bright, pure sunlight that is just uh, such a prominent feature of so many of these photographs just shows how mainstream it was regarded. And it's one thing to talk about hatred and uh, bigotry fueling part of this, uh, but I can't help but wondering that if part of what, um, and we often go into sort of discussions here and there of the suitability of different types of punishments, being a true crime podcast, and it was um, many decades still before America would still abolish public execution. And I mm-hmm. can't help but, in my humble opinion, feel that part of what could, to a very tiny extent, explain this strange culture of uh, feeling it appropriate to lynch is that it, that it was sort of um, uh, deemed as suitable that if the state could uh, uh, create a public spectacle of, of a death, then it was it was a fair game to do that by the populace. Because, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it just, yeah, you're right, because these pictures of his death, I don't know whether it's because he was Jewish and they thought, oh, well, that's okay. We can do this, you know, in the middle of the day or I don't know. I mean, bigotry is bigotry, as you were saying. 
Yeah, it's just it's just how clear these photographs or the ones that they have good sort of visages of. It's just that side view of his neck, and it's just like wow, you know. There's no shame here at all. They they, they believe they're doing a public service, and uh, you know, I'm sure you know issues like this in certain parts of the world still go on. People do their own street justice and stuff. Yeah, it's just a very sad case because there's always a question mark over exactly what happened and when. And like all really famous true crime, the, the ones that are the most interesting are the ones you can just not pinpoint exactly what happened. And this is, this is another one. So yeah, it's most likely the janitor did it. But it's not 100% that he did, you know. But I do, I do believe he did it, uh, just from my reading of the case. And um, I just, yeah, I, I think there was more than enough. I think now if the case is being tried, he would be um, acquitted by reasonable doubt. But back then they were pushing an agenda and the agenda got him convicted. So, yeah. Yeah, and out of all of this, Mary Fagan still keeps losing over and over because she's a footnote to her own murder. After all, it, it, yes. there's the, uh, it's always called the Leo Frank and Mary Fagan. That's right, um, Little Mary And she's always called, always called Little Mary Fagan, and there's actually a little rhyme about her that children growing up around that time were taught. But she was, if you do go online and look at, search for some photos, the photos that are available of her, she was such a dainty, beautiful little, I mean, I, I didn't, wouldn't look at her and think she was 13. I think she was maybe 16 or 17. She looked a bit older, but maybe she dressed so well, especially for someone from her background. And even the actress who portrayed her in the miniseries with Jack Lemmon, she was absolutely stunning. She was just this dainty, beautiful little thing. And in the miniseries, which is well worth a watch, and there's lots of other documentaries as well, but The Murder of Mary Fagan with Jacqueline, and that's the miniseries to watch. And, you know, you can see her getting dressed up. I'm going to go pick up my pay. I'm going to go to the parade afterwards. She had this little, like, sort of either handbag or parasol with her. She's walking down the street, and it's just like, wow. You know, this girl's got her whole life ahead of her, and no. And it just, it's actually, uh, actually, yeah, even the, you know, they have Connolly in it. They have obviously Leo Frank in it. They have the, um, the prosecutor in it and everyone does a great job. The guy that plays Connolly does a great job with him as well. You know, portrays him as being this sort of manic, confused person and which he obviously was. And Peter Gallagher's great as Leo Frank. So definitely, um, you know, tie it back to our movie interest. Definitely worth a watch. Yeah, I saw a uh, kind of a half documentary, half film. I can't remember the name of it. Um, there seems to be a few uh, sort of uh, low-key productions around that have uh, dramatized the storyline. I think, uh, yes, it's more well-known well in America, but it's uh, certainly uh, uh, far less mainstream compared to cases like Leopold and Loeb of that time. Yeah, exactly. Actually, Matt, I mean, is there any plays about Leo and Mary? I mean, maybe that's something we could... <laughs> I, seem to re I seem to remember reading something of the sort, or there uh, there may have been a a song. I mean, I'm I'm sure... Actually, I do remember a story where there was some sort of famous fiddler that came to town and uh, sort of uh, 
made her into a mythological uh, figure. Uh, oh. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Aunt does love blood. Yeah. Yeah, it is It is just a very, a very sad story, as all of the true crime stories that we talk about, because people lose their lives. And the, the greater family of these people, both the perpetrator and the victim, their lives are ruined as well. A lot of them die younger than they would normally have. And so we just send um, our energy out into the world for Mary and for Leo. Um, and, uh, yeah, I do, I, I do believe he was innocent of the crime. So. And you touched on this earlier, like uh, many of the lynching group ended up becoming first members of the new Ku Klux Klan because... Uh, uh, a lot of people don't. Uh, a lot of people um, think it was this one continuous movement from the American Civil War onwards. No, it was uh, it began briefly after the Civil War, died out for a long time, and partly owing to the sort of uh, ex- white supremacist, um, uh, born again uh, Christian extremism uh, around, caused by this trial, and also. Uh, Particularly, this film called The Birth of a Nation, which yes, taps into right, a lot yes. of uh, ugly sentiments, uh, that encouraged the new revival of the Ku Klux Klan in the late 1910s into the 1920s. And we yeah, know and even knuckles. Uh, yeah, and even a lot of prominent politicians, not just in the local legislatures, but the federal <laughs> Congress as well, had their ties with with the Ku Klux Klan, and it was perfectly acceptable for a long time that they did. Well, in the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan was able to uh, march in large numbers in, not just in the South, but there's that famous picture of walking down, uh, uh, what is it, Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, Mm. or or one of those main thoroughfares uh, by the monument. There's another famous photo of a a group of people in their hoods uh, on a Ferris wheel at a playground, just as if they were the local Rotary Club. They were just like, uh, the, even though they were openly racist and pro-white supremacists, they uh, were accepted as a part of mainstream culture. Yeah, that's right. And and look, this this sort of thing is not just unique to America. Believe you me, we've got some similar some of our own stories here to do with things like that in Australia, which we might get into at some point if there's an interesting aspect for us to talk about. So it's we're certainly not having a go at the US or anything. It's not just um, only their society that's had to deal with things like that. We've certainly had our share it's, of dealing with not, things like that here. And it's not blaming. Like, I actually feel sorry for America in that period. Yeah, exactly right. Well, Matt, this has been a really interesting discussion and I'm looking forward to, we normally just kind of, we don't announce the next case that we're going to discuss. We just like to sort of surprise you. Not that, I don't know if that's a good or bad surprise, (laughs) but we normally like to. So we just um, send our thoughts out to the victims of this crime, of course. Um, And to Matt, you know, thank you for joining me on this foray, um, I don't know if we'd call it a happy one, as we viewed a glimpse of hell. Well, it was a fascinating uh, bit of research. Um, I look forward to the next one. Okay. Yeah, me too, Matt. Will you um, 
Matt and I are, are, will uh, then uh, sort of regroup to do another recording shortly. So we're going to go and do that. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much, um, Matt. Everyone's to all of we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. And as Twitter, a of hell. Um, I, I tend to put most of our promotions on Facebook, but I need to remember that I can copy and paste into uh, those other uh, social media sites too. It's just that we tend to get most of our audience feedback on Facebook. Yeah, so it's a glimpse of hell on Facebook. And we will, uh, I myself want to start posting a lot more into our social media. It's just, I'm trying to figure out my tech. Matt's aware of this, my long-standing tech issues with what the heck tech I'm going to actually use to do some of this stuff with because every phone I've had, I hate. I've got tablets, I've got this, I've got that, and none of them seem to work the way I want them to work. So once well, I get that resolved, then yeah. Well, all you have to do is you get the mouse and you tap out in Morse code <laughs> and that sends out the feed. That would actually be good for us. We should actually do some Morse code. <laughs> but thank you for joining us um, for A Glimpse of Hell and we will see you on the next discussion. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Thank you.